is roughly 2 Timothy 1, uh, 8, 9-ish, maybe 10, 2. Um, when I got out of seminary, I had this really great plan. It was actually my, one of my senior projects in my last year of seminary. And the plan was to build a, a curriculum that would last for a whole year for college kids. It was everything that I, in my infinite wisdom, as a new seminary graduate, knew that college kids needed to hear. And uh, looking back at that spreadsheet um, of what I was going to teach for a year, uh, it was totally naive. <laughs> and none of it uh, still exists, except three things. I was convinced, and I still am convinced, that every year we need to hear a, a pure gospel sermon, just straight up, 100 proof, the gospel. Two, we need to hear about sex. And three, we need to talk about death. And so when Paul says to Timothy, Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, when Paul says this, immediately my mind says, oh, it's time to talk about death. So let's talk about death today. And the first thing we have to get squared away is what is death? And this question is actually not a question so much about death as it is about you and me. What are we? What is a biblical anthropology of what a human is? Because humanity is unique. Angels don't have bodies. Squirrels don't have souls, at least not in the same way we do, right? Cats certainly don't have souls. You know this is true. But humans have both a body and a soul. And in order to be a human, we require both to be in the same place. And death is then, by definition, the separation of a body from a soul. And that's how we're going to define it. When you go to a funeral, and this is a particularly apt topic for me, uh, last Saturday, my grandfather died. It was a wonderful death. He was a Christian man for the last five years. He was elderly, and he had a disease that would have been much more horrible to die from. And he just died in his sleep. It was extremely peaceful. But in, uh, on Saturday, a week from yesterday, I'm going to go to the funeral, and we're going to carry in his body, and then they're going to open up the casket, and everybody is going to lie to ourselves and lie to each other and say, oh, how good he looks, because he doesn't. We say that because when we experience a body that has been bereft of its soul, it's unnatural. We don't like it. It's wrong. And as a, uh, a plug for Friday night's McCrenna's Table speaker, who's speaking about the image of God and horror movies, um, as a plug for that, we know this because we have these horror movies, and these horror movies frequently will be centered around either souls without bodies, which is what we call ghosts, or bodies without souls, which is what we call zombies. And both are wrong, and both are upsetting, and it is unnerving to see a body without a soul. 
And I want to push against something that you hear um, <clears throat> relatively frequently uh, in the culture, which is just that this is a natural thing. This is part of the cycle of life, the circle of life, whatever you want to call it, where you are born, you live, you die, and then you're, you know, your dust returns to the earth, and this is all good. That's not true. It never should have been that we could be separated from our bodies. And Romans 5 is very clear what the cause of this is. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. As far as we know, sin is the only contagious, heritable, terminal disease we know of. You can get it from other people. You can pick it up. You were born with it. And it absolutely will kill you. So that all the reasons for any death, whether we're talking about war or murder or a car accident or a pneumonia or a heart attack, whatever it is, any reason for death is the result of sin in the world. It shouldn't be. Now, <clears throat> Anecdotally, as I've talked to people, I'd say about a third of people are afraid to die. And so just real quick before I go on, I want to address this. You, who are a Christian, do not need to be afraid to die. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is that Jesus has substituted himself for you. Jesus has given, who is the author of life himself, who is life himself, has given himself over into death in order to give you life. Reverend Cooney was talking about the, the happy exchange. This is it. Jesus gave his life and in exchange took my death. Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, took my sin and that caused his death. That's the first reason you don't need to be scared of death. The second reason is then he doesn't just leave you having life. What he does is he walks ahead of you. He leads you through your life and through your physical death into a fuller life. This is why at every single funeral we say the 23rd Psalm, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. You've done it before. You'll lead me through. Your staff and your rod, they comfort me. And there's the thing. For Christians, it ends up being kind of remarkable. Death ends up not being as bad as it might be. In fact, death ends up being something like a, a door for us. Um, there's a joke in my house, uh, if you're ever singing a hymn and you find the rhyme, mortal and portal, you can know that that hymn has been translated by somebody named Catherine Winkleworth because she loves this rhyme. And anytime she translates German hymns that have these ideas in them, she loves to rhyme mortal and portal, and she's right. 
The idea is that you are in Christ, and so death is not wholly bad for you. For you, death is a step through into life. As Jesus says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And I know I quoted it last week, so you'll have to forgive me, but it's just such a beautiful, a beautiful thing Jesus says when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies and Lazarus' sister comes and kind of, you know, dresses down Jesus for waiting around and not coming and healing him before he dies. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Which means that your loved ones that have died, my grandpa who died, is not dead. Not as the world means it. Yes, in a week he's going to be put in the ground. But he's alive in Jesus. Which means you don't have to fear death because you are with Jesus. In fact, the Bible writers, and, and when I say Bible writers, I mean they, that means that their, their words are inspired. The Holy Spirit would like you to know this. They will call death by nicknames. The early Christians uh, called them the sweet names of death. And they're kind of fun. So in Genesis 25, when Abraham, who is God's friend, dies... Moses says that Abraham was gathered to his people, which is just such a sweet image. This is my third grandparent, gone. So that means that when I die, my grandparents will be waiting for me, my brother will be waiting for me, and they will gather me, God will gather me to my people. And that's lovely. In Luke 2, Simeon, the old man who is waiting for the coming of the Messiah, who's waiting and waiting, and God says he's going to come, and then Jesus is brought into the temple by Mary and Joseph. Simeon walks up to them, and he begins singing. And Simeon says, Lord, now you let your servant depart in peace. Departing in peace sounds pretty nice. That's what happened to my grandpa. My mom was there. She slept right through it <laughs> because he departed in peace. Or Paul in Philippians 1.23 says that he is going to be with Jesus. That's a sweet nickname for death. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that death is simply sleep. And if you stop for just a minute and you think about what this image is, I don't know about you. Statistics say that a lot of you are short on sleep. Americans are just very short on sleep. I can't wait to go to bed. I can't wait. I've been an old man since I was about 18 years old, and I just cannot wait until it's bedtime. Because bed means, going to sleep means rest. It means not worrying. It means waking up restored. Revelation, speaking of rest, also calls death rest. And that image is nice, too, because a lot of us experience this life as a struggle or as a fight or as a labor. And there is nothing better than working really hard on a project and then sitting down with a beer 
and just resting. Or in Philippians again, Paul calls death just simply gain. So we don't need to fear death. And with that kind of established, we now can ask the question of the sermon, which is, so what happens to you when you die? I had a professor, one of my favorite professors at the seminary, his name was uh, Jeff Gibbs. And uh, Gibbs loved to say, and he was kind of nerdy, um, he had glasses and a long nose, and he'd point, push his glasses up, and he'd love to say that um, you die, and then some time passes, and then you're resurrected. And he said that the time in between, when you die and when you're resu resurrected, he called the interim state. And I can hear him saying it like this is so exciting, but actually I find that pretty technical and cold and not particularly interesting, the interim state. What do we call it? Yeah, we call it heaven, maybe paradise. If we want to be super awesome, maybe Abraham's bosom, right? And here's what we need to acknowledge. And, and this, is, this is kind of something that um, sometimes people find unnerving. We call it heaven, we call it paradise, we call it Abraham's bosom. But what we need to acknowledge is that the Bible reveals very little about that time. The time between when your body and your spirit are separated and you die and Jesus returns, the Bible has very little to say about it. Not nothing. We can say three things about it for sure. The first thing that we can say about it is what we just ended on, which is the, the, the sweet name of gain. Heaven will be gain. This is what Paul says in Philippians 1. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And to say that death is going to be gain for somebody like me is almost unthinkable. I have a great life. I have a beautiful wife. I have a fulfilling job. When I walk into my house, a two-year-old runs up to me like I've just made his day by walking in the door. I eat good food. I drink good wine. What does it mean? How wonderful is it that death will be gained for me? So much better. That to be with Jesus will be so much better. Because that's the other thing that Paul says. The first thing we know is that it will be gain. The second thing we know about the, interme the intermediate period is that we will be with Jesus then. When Jesus says to that thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, for one, he's talking about how it's going to be almost like Eden in some way. And I think if you push it and you ask in what way is heaven going to be like Eden, it's going to be that Jesus is there. And we'll finally be with him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, So we are also, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's what we really, really want. So to be clear, what the Bible teaches about the 
the period between your death and your resurrection is that you will be away from your body, but you'll be in God's hands and it'll be a far better place akin to paradise and at home with God. And the last thing we can say is that it will be temporary. It'll be temporary. And the reason we can say that is super simple. Actually, what God wants to do is he wants to point you to something different, something that is not just um, a spiritual existence in God's presence at rest, better than now. He wants, you to point, he wants to point you to something entirely different, something that is revealed by Jesus' death and by his resurrection. According to Paul, in our passage today, God had a purpose, a plan from before the ages began that we could not grasp until Jesus was resurrected. This is what he says in, in 1 Timothy, right? I'll read it to you. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. This is 2 Timothy 1, starting at verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What's funny is if you study other cultures, um, and we talked about this uh, at Easter, during the Easter sermon, if you study other cultures, it is not unusual. Lots of cultures have an idea that there is some, some non-material part of us that is immortal. The immortality of the soul is not a particularly Christian idea. Lots of people understand that. But Jesus' achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of that kind in the whole history of the universe. I'm sorry, Leslie, there's a bunch of C.S. Lewis quotes coming up. C.S. Lewis put this, this way in Miracles, and it's just, it's better than I can say it. By rising from the dead, Jesus, quote, forced open a door that has been locked since the death of Abel. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so, end quote. And that is the gospel message. That is the gospel message. And Jesus is at pains to show us this in every single one of his resurrection appearances. That he is not some kind of a ghost. He's not some kind of a spirit. Certainly he's not a zombie. He's a true human, a resurrected body and soul in unity. So in John, when he shows up to the disciples, he insists that Thomas put his finger in the holes in his hands and stick his hand in his side. And if you, if you ever see paintings of this, Thomas's face always looks terrified at having to do this, as, as you would be. In our gospel reading today, he shows up, and because they don't get it yet, he asks them, has anybody got any food? This is what he says. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. This is not some kind of a spiritual continuance of the soul. He has a real body, both like and unlike the body that his friends knew. Uh, a body that looks like his old body, but also doesn't look like it, so that they are, it is possible to recognize him, but not immediately. And it's clear that he has now a different relationship from space and probably from time than he used to. He's not cut off from space and time. He just has a different relationship. Because Jesus, says Paul, is the first fruits of a whole new mode of being human. Resurrection opens the possibility that we too might be resurrected into this new mode of being, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And then something happens. After six weeks of showing up, making them food, showing up, forcing Thomas to touch him, showing up, eating food, the vision stop. The appearances come to an end. Why? Jesus says very clearly, I go to prepare a place for you. In other words, if we have these new resurrected bodies, and we need a place, we need a new nature for them to live in. We need a new heavens and a new earth. So that when Jesus comes back, when we are raised from the dead and restored to our bodies, then he will give us a new earth. And, and, and what's, what's interesting is as soon as you start to think this way, you realize that the vast majority of Bible verses about the afterlife are not about the interim state. They're not about heaven. They're about the second coming. They're about the restoration of our bodies to us and his kingdom that we pray will come every time that we pray the Lord's prayer and how he's going to give that kingdom to you. So what happens when you die? You die and you go to be with Jesus and then some time passes. And for poor Paul and Peter and James, it's been like 2,000 years, right? And then at some point in the future, it could be any time now, Jesus comes back. Thy kingdom come, or as we say just before communion, amen, come Lord Jesus. He comes back and he comes back visibly. The scriptures say he'll be, it'll be like lightning across the sky. Everybody will see it. And he comes back loudly, which is why we don't believe in a secret rapture because everybody is going to know when that trumpet sounds and when that angel shouts because he is coming to bring you to a permanent home because our story doesn't end with death and our story doesn't end with heaven that's not the end of our story 
So what happens next? What happens when Jesus comes back? And Paul is just super clear about this. I'm just going to read to you from 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. But if we're going to be caught up in the clouds, but we're not going to spend eternity with a harp in the clouds, what will that be like? Jesus comes back. Jesus, there is a trumpet. We are resurrected. What does that mean? It means it's time for him to take our bodies, to remake them from the dust, or just maybe to remake them, and then to give us back our bodies so that what was never supposed to be separated can be reunited again. And those bodies, says Paul, will be changed. Like how? Like how changed? Well, Paul talks about, and he uses a metaphor, and I think it's a really nice metaphor because it's Holy Spirit inspired, so I have to say that. But it's also true. He says that our bodies that go into the ground, like my grandpa's body, will be like a seed, and what comes out of the ground in the resurrection will be like the tree that grows from the seed. And they are the same thing, right? Genetically, you can look at it, it's the same thing. But the thing that goes into the ground is obviously inferior to the thing that comes out. And the tree is, while being the same thing that the seed was, an entirely different thing. And Paul then goes and he begins to talk about what your body will be like that Peter read in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, your current body is perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural, and mortal. He says, you have a perishable body. And what that means is when something is perishable, when we say a foodstuff is perishable, it means what? It can go bad. He says your perishable body will be imperishable, incapable of going rotten. Your dishonorable body, and, and, and look, we all have embarrassing things about our bodies, right? And dead bodies are particularly embarrassing. We try to get them out of the way as quickly as possible. That our dishonorable bodies will become glorious. That you'll want to look at them. That our weak bodies that are falling apart with torn meniscuses and bad shoulders and all that stuff. That our weak bodies will become powerful. That our natural bodies, which are subject to nature, subject to hunger, subject to the need for sleep subject to disease, our natural bodies will become spiritual, which doesn't mean immaterial, 
Jesus' body is not immaterial. It's just governed by his spirit, not by the laws of nature. There are mortal bodies. The ones that can die will be replaced by immortal bodies. So that, and then it's worth just hearing what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 15, what Peter read. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your victory? sting. And if we have a new body, then we need a new home for that body to live in. And this is exactly what John sees in the vision of Revelation. You get all the way through Revelation. It's 19 chapters of blood and fire and smoke and disasters and persecutions and Satan attacking and demons attacking. You get through all of that. Jesus finally wins. The dead are raised. And you get this from Revelation 21. John sees this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And what John sees is so much better than what humanity has always longed for. I don't know if you know this, but all mythologies have an idea. As far as I know, all mythologies have an idea that what was in the past was better than what is current. It's called the golden age. And it's super easy for us to think the Garden would be, of Eden would be really nice, but that's not what God has for us. What God has for us is something even better. He has a garden city that he has prepared just for you and me. This is what John sees, uh, continuing in Revelation 22. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, as bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of that city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and there will be no need for light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And if you, if you try to talk too much more about what it'll be like in that new earth, in that new Jerusalem, you, you tend to find that people's words fail or they're super stupid. Those are the two options. Because you can't. Words fail because they must, because God says that whatever it'll be will be better than we're capable of imagining. 
Which is why, actually, my favorite description of it doesn't even try. If you read all the way through the Chronicles of Narnia, you get to the very last book, and the world of Narnia ends. And they go to the equivalent of this new earth. And C.S. Lewis writes just the most beautiful paragraph. I'm going to change the pronouns just slightly. He says, The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. We can most truly say that we will all live happily ever after. For us, it is only the beginning of the real story. All our life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the greatest story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Charlotte, I feel like we need an amen. Amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please stand.